Welcome to Dear 20-something. I'm Erica, the host of this podcast, and I'm so excited to have you here. A bit about me, I'm a 20-something social entrepreneur and investor who is navigating the ups and downs of being in my 20s. The Dear 20-something podcast started because we wanted to create a space for ambitious and curious 20-somethings to connect with the successful changemakers they most look up to. While the 20s can be a time full of questions and doubts, we're here to humanize the whole thing. You'll hear from successful trailblazers who will share the highs and lows of their 20s, and you'll also get words of wisdom from some experts who will speak on a certain topic relevant for 20-somethings. And then sometimes it'll just be me on the mic hosting an episode where I share a recent reflection or story from my own life as I too am navigating this wild decade. We're so happy to have you here. Let's get started. Today on the show, I am so excited to be chatting with Stephanie Moy. Steph is the founder of PIN, also known as Power in Numbers, a VC-backed company that enables communities of people, including people from Stanford, YC, Coinbase, and more, to invest in startups together. She's passionate about enabling more people to become founders and startup investors by increasing access and education with PIN. She was formerly on the venture capital investing team at NEA and helped invest over $150 million. She studied at Stanford GSB for her MBA and at UChicago for her BA in economics. I can't wait to chat with her and share her story with you now on Dear 20-something. Please welcome Steph. Hey, Steph. Erica, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I I will say, like, when I think of you, I think of all the funny shit you post on Twitter that always makes me laugh. Oh, my God. I'm so honored. It's my um, my creative outlet. I'm not a good writer, nor am I a good, you know, videographer, even stuff like this, you know, besides talking to people like you that make it very easy is frankly not super comfortable. But shit posting, I'll do that all day. It comes, comes very naturally. <laughs> like you're unreal. I would actually argue you're a great writer because you're able to shit post so well. But honestly, the stuff you write, that's how I first heard about you was I just kept seeing your profile pop up with the funniest things. And I was like, who is this girl? Like it was actually making me laugh. You know who else does that? Do you know Allie Pope at Variant? Yes, I do. I've seen her stuff a lot and she's really freaking funny. Yeah, she's like one of my good friends. She's wonderful. And she's kind of like you where like you guys will post things. And I'm just like, God, I wish I thought of that. That's really funny. So anyway, it's nice to be meeting you virtually. Yeah, you as well. It's like finally nice to put a face to a name live besides profile photos on Twitter. I know, right? It's always funny. Like sometimes I meet people and I'm like, huh, you don't you don't look like your profile photo. <laughs> so, okay, so let's get started. We like to start every show with a bit of an icebreaker fun question. You can take it any direction you want. You can be serious. You can be light, whatever resonates. What is something new that you've learned in this past week that you can share with our listeners? Oh, okay. This comes top of mind because it's something that I've been trying to learn and finally started and bit the bullet. Now I'm going to make this a weekly thing. But I went to my first pickleball game this week and I'm hooked and I really want to become a really, really good pickleball player, which I know is kind of hopping on the bandwagon, but... It's so fun. I'm truly addicted. I think it's amazing. That's so mainstream of you. Pickleball is very cool these days. <laughs> it is. How did you get started? Like, what was the what was the game? Is there a court nearby? Like, how did that happen? Yeah. So not to be like, you know, a classic VC, like I totally found this first and was cool. But it's funny, my first few games actually was when I was a VC at NEA, to their credit, whoever set up our team retreat, made um, like a giant pickleball tournament part of our kind of activities. And I actually genuinely thought it was amazing. The fact that anyone from 
analyst associate like myself, all the way to like super senior GP, different athletic abilities could all play together. And it was still really fun and inclusive. I got into second place, I remember on my team and I was like, oh man, it's so close. I'm so close, but I felt a very strong connection to the sport. And so it's funny now that it's taken off again. I live in New York City, so they're also everywhere, like literally down the street where our Dwayne Reed is. There's literally now a pickleball court kind of painted onto the sidewalk. And so I was like, this is a, this is a calling that's been calling me for several years. Now I just have to bite the bullet and do it. And it's super fun to, to bond with people over it. So I'm also excited for that. I love that it's for people of all ages. I think there's like not enough sports that are like that. Golf is like one of them. But there aren't many where like you can really like swimming, you can kind of do it any age, but there aren't many where you can really actually be like in second place, whether you're like way younger or way older. So true. Yeah. Okay. So I am moving to New York, which I don't know if I told you yet. Oh, no, I did not know that. Wait, I'm new update. We have to talk all about that. Oh my gosh. I know. Are you excited? We'll to discuss. I know. So I'm moving in a couple months, but when this episode comes out, I think I like might already be there or I will be back to be there. <laughs> I I'm so excited. So like I, we need to go play pickleball. I want to join oh, I want to join these games. I I can't wait. I like that's part of what I'm craving is like that community, that like in-person athletic fun young community that I feel like New York really is crushing it in that arena these days. I also love hanging out with people who are new to New York because I feel like I've lived here before, but I'm still relatively new. I moved back a year ago after being in the Bay Area for many years, but it's so fun hanging out with people who are new to New York or who are just moving back because everything's new, exciting, fresh. Whereas like you'll meet these New Yorkers and like love them too, because they're obviously part of the culture here, but they're so jaded. They've been here for like 10, 15 years and they've like done it all, seen it all. You know, they have their same two, three places they go to over and over again. Um, So I'm super excited for you to get here. We'll do like new things together and I'm excited to see like the excitement that you have for the city too. Oh, I'm like so fresh eyed. It's actually hilarious. Like I am obsessed with the city. I cannot wait to move there. I'm going to like do all the things. I'm also like a Broadway freak. So like I'm going to be like looking for buddies to go see shows and like do pickleball and and all the good things. That's the other hack that I feel like I didn't know until I moved here. But I love the Broadway lottery. I literally enter for almost every single show I haven't seen every day. And for I'd say like 90% of them that aren't Hamilton, they're actually pretty easy to win. And so that's how I dictate like when I go, I'll like randomly win. And like the other day I went to Moulin Rouge, like two weeks ago, I had never seen Wicked. I won the Wicked lottery, decided to go to Wicked. So anyway, the Broadway lottery is like a hidden gem of New York that sounds really touristy, but especially if you live here and you can do it more frequently, it's amazing. Such a good hack. I'm totally going to do that because like usually when I go to New York, I have only a set amount of days. So I like mm-hmm. buy my tickets in advance and I'm like psychotic about it. But now I can be more casual like, oh, it's a Tuesday and I got the lottery. I'll just totally. go. Exactly. Yeah, it's a great idea. OK, so why the move from the Bay to New York? And I ask that oh because I'm obviously I'm doing the L.A. to New York move. I know a lot of people that have done the SF to New York move. I have my own opinions, but like I'm so curious. Why? Why the move? Uh, well, it's crazy. So I moved out to SF back in 2016 from New York and I loved it. The first like six to 12 months after I got to know the place and settled in and made friends, I literally thought I was going to be in SF for the rest of my life. And then I went to grad school. We graduated into COVID in 2020. And then just over that summer, I just saw the city decline. Not only did, you know, everyone start leaving, crime started kind of escalating. I started feeling unsafe, even just like taking a walk around my block and kind of the buzz and excitement and the people and like the quote unquote network effects, both personally and professionally just started disappearing. And I remember like, even when things started healing, vaccines started coming out, I was kind of expecting more life to come back to the city and it just never did. 
And I remember I actually came to New York in May 2021. A friend of mine actually had a subletted apartment that she wasn't using. And so she said, you know, feel free to use it while I'm out. I thought I was going to be here for two, three months while she was out. And immediately I come here and the energy is just what you imagine when you think of New York. And it was cool to see the transition from like right before things really started picking up to like full on summer escalation. And so by the time she uh, came back in like August, September, I basically just didn't want to leave. And I was like, I'm moving to New York. <laughs> I just like yeah. made it a default. Yeah, it was great. And and how often do you go back to the Bay Area these days? Like, do you feel like you're still, there's still enough happening there where you go back frequently? Or are you kind of like, no, New York, there's so much happening here. I There's no need to really go back that often. Yeah, truthfully, I almost never go back to SF. And people who know me know that I try to stay in SF as little as possible. I will batch all of my meetings in the same span of like 72 hours. And I see the same three friends every time I go, aka like my last soldiers standing who are still in SF and haven't made the move to New York yet, although fingers crossed any day now. But yeah, in terms of like fundraising or activity or clients or founder friends or whoever, I honestly don't feel like Uh, a strong need to go back to SF or even really leave the New York ecosystem. Like New York to me now actually feels like when I first went to SF for a venture in 2016, it's just so vibrant. Things are in person. People are excited and open to meeting new people. That's what I really love, especially as a solo founder. It just gives me so much energy here. Yeah, I love it. Well, you're honestly just selling me more and more and I could not be more excited. (laughs) I'm craving that. What if you were like, actually, New York is horrible. I'm moving back to SF. You shouldn't come. I would be like, thank goodness. (laughs) Thank God. Okay. So let's, let's get into your story because I want to hear all the details. So obviously you ended up going to UChicago, which is an amazing school, but walk me through some of like the childhood high school years. Like what did you want to be when you grew up? What were your parents like? What kind of childhood did you have? Walk me through some of that stuff. Oh gosh, where do I begin? Well, UChicago is also known where fun goes to die. So that's also like probably gives you an indication of how my my life ended up kind of going through ups and downs. But yeah, my childhood was pretty normal. I grew up in suburban New Jersey. One like really nerdy thing about me growing up that I think actually did influence a lot of my career now is I became fascinated with a hobby of inventing. Long story short, my like public high school, they had this competition every year that everyone was mandated to participate in. We had to invent a product and also create like a science fair, like, like trifold poster around it and create like a potential business model and talk about how we develop it if we, if we were to pursue it. And they had it every single year and we would get graded by judges. And it was this whole thing where like, you know, the best groups would then go to state level and the national level and so on and so forth. And I hated it the first two years because I kept losing and I had no creative ideas. But by the last year in fifth grade, I got really excited. It was a combination of my dad's an engineer um, and actually like very, very handy. And so all these products were like physical products that we were building. But I found like working with him was so much fun. He introduced me to founders and weird products and gadgets and things like that. Um, and I remember in fifth grade, I actually won that year. And I think maybe it's like that little tiny bit of success and like escalating to, you know, state level and the national level, and, like meeting all these cool people who were like thinking outside of the box and doing these really cool things for a fifth grader really inspired me to think about career paths outside the traditional kind of like, you know, go to school or go to the one few jobs that I knew of when I was in elementary school. And so I feel like from a young age, my my horizon was pretty broad in that sense. And so I left that a little bit when I obviously went to high school, college, went to banking, et cetera, um, but like found my way back to it. And I think I've always had like a kind of a fascination and love for like that innovation and, and entrepreneurial spirit. I love that. I am so unreal jealous that you got that experience. <laughs> I actually think most schools separate from yours do a terrible job of teaching what inventing entrepreneurship building is. I didn't even know what any of that was until honestly, like Shark Tank in high school. 
I didn't have any exposure to it. No one in my family did business. And so to hear that they had this inventing competition that everyone had to do is incredible. And I'm so glad that you were also able to like work at it year after year and like maybe suck at it in the beginning. But then eventually you like figured it out. You're like, oh, I need to invent something that actually is valuable. What were some of like the notable products, either like really terrible or really great? Maybe even like that fifth grade one that made you get to state and national. <laughs> okay, this is so embarrassing. There were two. And actually my like pride and joy, I just told this story recently after like repressing it for 10 years. But I remember we won the competition. It was this thing called CN Tweez, very clever name. It was okay. a tweezer light magnifying glass apparatus that allowed someone to kind of like take out their own splinters or like hobbyists who wanted to create these products like because basically the problem was obviously having a magnifying glass and a light and a tweezer all together having only two hands was like really difficult you know so that was my brilliant first invention Um, probably my most successful one as well we did snowboard training wheels Um, so I was learning how to snowboard I fell all the time I'm notoriously clumsy and so my dad helped me build these cool kind of like clip-ons to the end of snowboards. So like they looked so goofy. They were essentially like these little wings that came off the snowboard, but they worked really well and kept people up or kept me up while I was learning. And so I ended up entering those into a bunch of competitions too. One of like the coolest prizes that I won was being able to open the Universal Studios Jimmy Neutron ride. That was definitely like really cool for me in middle school. <laughs> but yeah, I think all that excitement really just got me excited about all of this, even though it was obviously misguided in some ways. Like entrepreneurship is not really all like that. <laughs> yeah. And like, look at us now investing in software when like all we thought about was like exactly. fun product businesses back then because we didn't understand technology. Well, I'll speak exactly. for myself. I certainly didn't. No, I didn't. <laughs> We're like, what product can we invent? That's so sick. The snowboard thing kind of has legs, like no pun intended, but like that kind of is, did you guys ever try to like, build like a real MVP and like sell it? Or was it more just like for the competition circuit? It was more for competition. So it's funny, I will say I used it. And I think something that I've gotten from my parents is they're all utility and they don't care at all about how things look or what people think or anything. So me and my dad, when we're using it and these like ugly wings are coming off our snowboard and we're like blocking the whole mountain and like getting in everyone's way. And everyone's like, what are those things? Like that didn't bother us. But in terms of like a mainstream product, I could see the aesthetic of it being really disruptive and hard thing to adopt. But they, I will say they were really effective. And like, you never know, I see people, kids learn on leashes and this kind of looks silly. So, you know, potentially one day there could also be something like this. <laughs> yeah. Like I almost think on like day one, you think I don't need that. That's too ugly. And then like day two, once you're all bruised, Exactly. Day three, you're like, I don't care what it looks like. I need it. <laughs> exactly. That's like your market. You know what I mean? Like finding the people that are like on day two or three. Anyway, that's hilarious. <laughs> I randomly, so like this is mine is significantly more embarrassing because um, I did it when I was much older than you. I was like, I think I was like 14. No, I was, oh my God, I was older. I think it was like 17. Yikes. <laughs> I, I created, you know how like when you get a Starbucks hot drink, it can sometimes be really hot and you don't always yes. know the temperature. And they've had those like burn lawsuits, you know, where yes. like McDonald's, it like, you know, it sprays on the woman, it, like she gets third degree burns, whatever. So it's like a thing that you put in with like a little thermometer. So you can see oh like the gosh. temperature of your drink before you sip it versus like blowing on it and like trying. Oh so like stuff like that, isn't it funny to look back on and be like, oh my God, the stuff that we talk about and deal with now, like when you were at NEA and like when I was at my last fund and now like we're both just so in the technology world, but like back then it was just cool, innovative products that like were so random, but oh it gosh. shows those early innings of being an entrepreneur, you know, that you even like had those ideas. 
Oh my God, Erica, you're going to laugh out loud. So my third grade invention, which I literally have not thought about until this moment in like over a decade, was this thing called the cooler spoon. And it was because soup that I would drink or like things that I would eat were too hot. And so it was literally a spoon that not only had a temperature to know, to tell me as a you know third grader, whether my food was appropriate to eat, but it even had a fan attached to the top of it so that if it were too hot, I could use the fan to cool it off. <laughs> I, we were on the same wavelength. If only we had met sooner, you know? I know, I know. Okay. So my whole thing too, is I'm psychotic about the temperature of things. Like I like my soup to be really hot. Uh, and I have like an exact temperature. I like like not burning hot, which is I might need the cooling spoon, cooler spoon. <laughs> but and so I think like with people that care a lot about temperature, like these things really matter. And like you would pay money for it, you know, and like a fan and everything. I'm just saying you've, you've got something there. Oh, we have so many synergies, you know, we could have <laughs> so made it happen. Been... <laughs> I know. I know. Good co-founders. We should have started something when we were like eight together. I know. That would be hilarious. <laughs> okay, cool. So so great childhood. Sounds like parents were very supportive. Did you have any siblings or was it just you, only child? I did have a younger brother. He is two and a half years younger. We are super opposite in the sense that he works to live. And I really admire that about him as in like, he knows what makes him happy. He loves being in the mountains. He loves working hard, but in a very kind of like work-life balance job. And I think we were originally on the same path of kind of like ambitious building, you know, finance, and we like quickly diverted. And I'm like so proud and happy for him. So anyway, he's in Denver and he's living his life with his dog and Subaru and really embracing that. (laughs) Sometimes don't you just wonder like, wow, wouldn't life be nice if I could just like live in Denver and just like go hang in the mountains? Like, I, I admire that. I respect it. And I think so many people can find pleasure and joy and passion outside of work. I think that that's not so far the path that you have chosen, which is awesome because you're building cool stuff. But I think it's equally rewarding to like have such a beautiful life and be out in nature. Like Denver is so beautiful. Does he like oh hike gosh. a lot and like spend his time outdoors, hopefully? 100%. He's actually the person that I escape to. Like I'll go physically to visit him frequently anyway, but especially when I'm having a rut in my own life, it really just takes me out of my own day-to-day. To your point, it's like, wow, my brother is so happy living his life in this very different way, in this very different world. He works tangentially in tech, but not at all in kind of this like startup ecosystem that I'm in. And it really makes me put things into perspective. Like I feel like I'll be really stressed out about something or had the, the roughest couple of weeks or whatever. And it's almost like a mind reset. It's really nice to kind of have that, that contrast between us, I think, because of that. I love it. I love it. So Great family, cool brother, doing awesome stuff now in Denver. You go to U Chicago. You study economics. What is like at this point the career ambitions? Do you think you want to be an entrepreneur? Do you think you want to be an investor? And like, what does that like college and post college time look like for you? Yeah, I think during college is where I totally lost myself. When I was reflecting on this, I remember in freshman year, one of my biggest initiatives that I wanted to do at least was start this thing called student agencies. Um, like Harvard had one and basically it was like a bunch of student run businesses on campus where people could actually use real money to build real businesses that served campus. And I remember like my biggest like freshman year initiative was to try to create a Chicago version of that. It failed really miserably. I don't even remember what happened. It was just like there was no traction. Chicago also student population wise back then was super academic rather than entrepreneurial or even pre-professional. And so I feel like there just wasn't enough traction on campus to really get it started. And then kind of after that, I feel like most of the rest of my time in college was focused on 
like finance, weirdly enough. Um, like sophomore year, I got into this very kind of quantitative trading program that set me up with like a lot of prop trading, like internships and exposure. I was also taking a lot of econ classes, very heavy in math, et cetera. And then I think actually the biggest influence of all was just seeing a lot of my older friends go get banking jobs. And kind of to your earlier point, actually, of just when I was young, didn't even realize that technology uh, businesses existed. I did know that entrepreneurship and that existed. Um, but I think when you're kind of consumed in a an environment where everyone's kind of doing this thing, it's the thing you're most familiar with, it almost feels like the thing that you should be shooting for too. And I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that. But I, it was like starting sophomore year, it like wasn't even a second thought that I'd be going into like finance or investment banking. And I had the whole banking, private equity, you know, MBA, two, two, two plans set in my head. And that's kind of what my ambition was. And that's so many people that are in business school at these top universities in undergrad, you know, like they literally plug you into like iBanking. And then if you don't want to do that, and like you said, take kind of the PE and MBA route, or you do consulting. And then like, yeah. if you don't want to do that, then like, good luck. And it's just so disappointing that there that there isn't this explanation around all these other options and like actually more conversation around personality fit. Like even just knowing you a little bit on the internet and like meeting you now, like it's so obvious that you're so entrepreneurial. You know what I mean? And like, Can I, I not strike you as an investment banker. <laughs> I take that as a compliment. If you had said that, I would have been like, oh man, this is going really badly. No, there's just some people that honestly, it's like some people just need to go that route and explore and find it for themselves. But there's also like something to be said for really getting personality tests and like a real evaluation when you're in college. So you don't have to go through that pain. Totally. There's nothing wrong with taking a longer route, but it's so clear that you had signs in your background pointing to that. And, you know, you can still be great at math and econ and be an incredible entrepreneur, or incredible investor. It's just a bummer that we kind of have this like one track mindset of like eye banking. And if not eye banking, then consulting. And then if not consulting, good luck. So totally. how did that eye banking thing work out? Like from, from what I, when I did my research, you actually did do that <laughs> after college, right? Like you did the JP Morgan thing and mm. how did you like it? And then also talk a little bit more about like switching over to NEA and NEA is obviously like, honestly, I feel like the biggest or one of the biggest firms? Is it the biggest? I think it used to be the biggest. And then SoftBank and all these other guys have now kind of Oh, yeah, yeah, of in. course. But they, at one point, were the biggest. <laughs> at one point, were the biggest. NEA is one of the like tier one venture funds. And so walk me through a little bit like how you liked your iBanking experience at JP Morgan and then what led you to switch to the NEA side, the venture side. So it's funny. I, I remember you get your internship for banking in junior year, there's really, you know, at that point, you were, you know, either an intern or you tried your chance at full-time recruiting, but very rarely had an opportunity. And so when I got my junior year internship, I was, you know, on cloud nine, I felt like I had made it. And my number one goal at that point was like to get the offer. So I would get the full-time job offer and become an investment banker. And the craziest thing is I remember I went through my summer, you know, as a summer intern, you're kind of everything's great, right? You're new to everything. Kind of what we just talked about, like maybe people moving to New York, like everything's great at first. But in investment, yeah, I feel like I was, you know, things were great, but it didn't feel like I thought it would feel. And I think it really hit me when I got my offer on the last day, which should have been kind of this euphoric cloud nine moment of, wow, I'm going to finally have this full-time job offer that I've been working for for so long. And I actually ended up just crying. Like I remember um, we all got our offers that day, uh, like an analyst class of 12 of us. We were planning on going out that night to celebrate. And I actually remember skipping out on that celebration to literally just be by myself and just like cry. And it sounds so pathetic to say that. And I probably should have taken that as a bigger sign that it was not the right fit. But I basically couldn't reconcile in my brain how I was working so hard for something 
and had a fine summer for sure. Like I didn't feel overworked. I, I was overworked, but I didn't feel that way. Yet I still felt so kind of like empty and unfulfilled having attained what I thought was my, you know, ideal goal. But despite that feeling, I quickly kind of brushed that under the rug, ended up signing my full-time offer to go there anyway, and then had two years there. And I will say I was the worst analyst ever. (laughs) I don't even know how else to say it. I was terrible. I think I was really great for like the first three months. That's when my energy was super high. That's when I was learning a ton. I felt fulfilled. And then it quickly just became really unfulfilling. And that same feeling that I had at the end of my internship just kept coming up, which was like, what is the meaning of this work? frankly, you know, to be blunt, I was working with a lot of people who definitely didn't care about me as a person, let alone anyone else on our team and very much treated me as such. Um, The work I was doing was so far removed from the things that I was excited about, which were like the companies themselves and the strategy and actually getting involved with the direction of things beyond just being a startup or not a startup, a spreadsheet monkey. And I just realized it wasn't for me like very quickly. And I made the mistake of staying there for two years, even though I was horrible at it. And I'm sure my group would have also loved if I had quit sooner as well. But the funny thing about it, I remember um, going to NEA was also kind of by accident. I was, again, at that time in banking, despite hating it, I was like, okay, private equity, that's what I've always wanted to do. And that'll be better because everyone always talks about how the buy side is better. And so I was really recruiting for mega fund private equity firms. And then kind of because of my background in TMT and because of my entrepreneurial experience, some of the headhunters would throw these like smaller, you know, interviews my way for VC firms, like NEA being one of them. I had, you know, a small handful, even though it wasn't my focus. And long story short, actually, my boss at the time, not the most understanding that I was looking for another job, (laughs) understandably. I remember he actually pulled me out of all my private equity recruiting processes as they were happening. And I was devastated at the time. And I remember NEA and a couple other firms, all the VC firms, were actually the only firms willing to kind of wait for me to be able to be available again to interview. Whereas all the mega fund private equity firms were like, okay, you're one of 100 people we're interviewing. It's going to be far too late to wait you know, another week or two weeks. Like we're just going to choose someone else. And NEA, I met them, you know, a couple of weeks later. And I just like really connected with the firm right away. Like I still remember my interview. It just felt so natural. It felt like a natural conversation like this rather than a really formal interview. And especially when I was a young, you know, 23 at the time, 22 at the time, I never had that very kind of natural connection with adults much older than me. I'd always been very intimidated by adults. And so I think that's the first sign that that was one of the first signs to me that it was like a good cultural thing. And then joining, I think, and being on the early stage investing team and like meeting all the founders just made me feel like this is an awesome career and I'm super excited to be here and and blessed that the the private equity route didn't work out. Thank you for sharing all that. Would you mind telling me a little bit more about like you were, you first of all said TMT, which I want to clarify to everyone, technology, media, and telecom, right? You did at JP Morgan. So you said your TMT background was what made you interesting for some of these venture firms because you'd seen some of the like kind of at the later stage, what happens with tech companies, media companies, telecom companies. What was like that for that private equity recruiting piece? Like what happened with like the boss? Like, was it just they found out that you were looking elsewhere and they were like, you must stop it now. How did that go down? That's horrible that they like pulled you out and you didn't have a say in the matter. Yeah. And I think that was another realization to me that they just do not care about me. It's weird. When I was recruiting, this was back in 2014-ish, 2015 time. It was when all of the, the banks had basically started issuing policies about their analysts recruiting. Like previously, it was kind of this don't ask, don't tell policy where analysts could recruit. They would recruit super early, like six, 12 months into their job. Um, and as long as you were discreet about it, okay, you were going to the doctor or whatever, everyone kind of knew that that was happening and no one did anything about it. They would just like kind of let you go off and get your job offer, finish your two years and you would kind of go. 
the years that I was recruiting, that was the first couple of years where banks really started cracking down. They started having policies that, you know, if they found out that they that you were recruiting, you were at risk of being fired. And so I was fortunate that my group was more lax than that. They had kind of an unofficial don't ask, don't tell policy, meaning, you know, they'll let people recruit as long as it doesn't get in the way of work. And it just happened to be during recruiting season, I was on two really tough projects, unfortunately, both with the same person who was very not understanding and didn't care about my career progression at all. It was like, this stuff is my one analyst on two of these busy projects. If she doesn't do it, no one else is going to do it. And so it was kind of his personal decision which kind of annoyed me, frankly, that I just wasn't allowed. And if, if I continued, he would escalate it further and therefore they would have to do something about it. And so I kind of felt like stuck in a hard place at that point. I'm like, okay, at the time it felt really scary. Now looking back, I should have been just like, okay, fire me. I don't care. <laughs> but at the time it felt really intimidating. And I was like, oh man, I don't want to mess with this guy. And so I just kind of did whatever he said. Yeah. That's what happens when you're a 20 something. Like right. there are sometimes, especially men that'll pull you in a corner or that'll say something that are like, Hey, you know, you'll never be able to do this or you'll never be, you know, you'll get fired or whatever the threat is. And then as you get older, you're like, yeah, uh, you suck. And, uh, try me, yeah. you know, but it takes, it <laughs> so takes relatable. Yes. It takes like, I had one person tell me that like, if I didn't take a certain job offer, I'd never be that successful without him. Oh my God. And I like look back at it now and I'm like, it's actually humorous. Like, I'm like, if I yeah. worked for you, like, oh, honey, you have no idea. But that's why we do these conversations is like for 20 somethings that are listening to be like, okay, if you have a boss that's trying to tell you like to pull out of these things or whatever, like maybe don't. Totally. Maybe yeah. don't. Okay. Fire me. Great. Yeah. Fire me. You know, you have a few months of runway. You're in the interview process anyway. So I think it's important to talk about these things. A hundred percent. I appreciate you bringing that up too, because I feel like it's so hard in the moment to see why someone would say that to you. Like at the time, I remember thinking, oh, like this person's looking out for my best interest. Or in this case, it was very clear he was just being selfish with his, you know, his own needs of, you know, wanting to create, you know, less work for himself. But yeah, people always have motives. Like I see it all the time, even with my friends who are like leaving venture firms to join other firms or startups to do whatever. People are always going to use like or not always, but I've seen people use really harsh tactics to get people to stay. And I feel like if anything, that shows insecurity and something much deeper Then it's not, it's never a concern for you or your best interest, right? It's always like a selfish motive of the person for the most part. And so I agree. And I really appreciate you bring that up because I think I wish I internalized that sooner <laughs> for myself. And sometimes you have to kind of go through it yourself to really learn that hard lesson versus hearing it on a podcast or hearing it from a friend. Totally. But yeah, we'll, we'll share some off the record tea at some point. Cause um, I also have some, <laughs> I have some stories. Well, we're playing pickleball. We'll chat more. Love. Okay. So you're at NEA and it sounds like it was an amazing fit, but I want to hear more about that. And then you decided to go to Stanford for GSB, like mm -hmm. to get your MBA, the Graduate School of Business. What made you decide to go do that? And I mean, I have a guess, you know, if you get into Stanford, a lot of people say go. But I'm actually I have a lot of friends right now who gotten in in the past like month, they'd like gotten in for this fall, but they didn't know whether or not they were going to do it. Because like when life is going, life is going, it's hard to pick up. So Completely. walk me through like how NEA ended and why you decided you wanted to to go to business school? Yeah. So I will say this is like kind of my mistakes repeating again, even though I think the outcome was very good. But the quick story is that I had actually applied for GSB when I was in college as a senior at UChicago. Did you do the two plus two program? Is that the program you did? Exactly. And it was more out of convenience. Long story short, I had to take the GMAT anyway. And so I figured why not use it while I still have it valid to apply for other schools. And so I got into Stanford GSB. And like, in my mind at the time, I was like, Oh, my God, this is amazing. Like my whole plan of going to banking and then PE and then Stanford GSB is all working out perfectly. And so it was funny when I left banking to go to NEA, 
even when I first joined NEA, I kind of, I wasn't a hundred percent sure, but I was like pretty sure I was going to still stick on the two plus two plus two path. And so I was like, okay, planning on kind of going to business school at the end of my two years at NEA. And I remember as it started getting closer, I started getting more nervous. And I actually don't think it's that easy of a decision to decide to go to business school, even if it's one that you really like. And for me, Stanford was like my dream school in the sense that, you know, UChicago was very academic, not at all startup related. I grew up in New Jersey, kind of far away from that kind of culture. And so Stanford for me was like, wow, I'm finally getting to immerse myself in this community that I've admired from the outside for so long. And kind of, again, it was a similar thing where I was, um, you know, similar to my kind of banking dilemma. I felt really weird about it. I was not sure at all. I ended up actually talking to like, quite literally, probably like 60 different people, (laughs) combination of my bosses, my old mentors, Stanford GSB alum, business school grads from other schools, people who had chosen not to go to business school, like to get every single kind of perspective. And I don't think that was helpful, by the way. (laughs) There's There's a saying that's like, if you want the right decision, don't ask everyone. And I feel like that's so true because I just confused myself more by asking everyone. But I was really torn because on one hand, it's like, I really liked NEA and I really liked venture. The other thing is I really had this kind of like entrepreneurial feeling in my gut that I wanted to do something operational or entrepreneurial. And I was like, am I just being cowardly by going to GSB? There's also the financial component as well. Anyway, all these things were kind of jumbled in my head. And I ultimately decided to go to GSB. And I'll I'll be honest, I think part of it was that it was the default option, meaning I had already had the acceptance. It wasn't renewable. So like, this is the last year I could go. And so I knew that if I wanted to go again, I'd have to take the GMAT and apply again and get in again, which I knew just wasn't going to happen. And so it was just kind of the the easiest path. And so I'll be honest, probably like 60% of the reason I went was because it was the easiest path at that time. Had I not gotten in already, I don't know if I would have made the effort to actually apply and go. Um, If anyone's interested in this topic, I also wrote this whole like 30 page notion doc on the trade-offs of business school and thinking through all the different factors. But at the time I was really kind of confused there, but I'm really happy I went because literally going to GSB and meeting all these amazing people was the only reason why I had the courage and also the knowledge to start the company that I do today. So I feel very lucky there. I love it. And I appreciate the honesty. I think that's the hard part of these two plus two programs is like you apply when you're not a kid, but like you don't know what the real world is like. You apply when you see Stanford is this shiny thing or Harvard is a shiny thing or name your school, you know. But then once you get out in the real world and like life is happening and you like have a community and you have a city and you have a career, you're like, ah, I used to want this. Do I still want it? I don't know. And it is not that simple. It's really not that simple. So I definitely want to link this Notion doc in the show notes because that sounds super valuable. And I even have a few friends I'm going to send it to. Amazing. (laughs) Who are deciding. So walk me through PIN. Like the thing that you're building now, you obviously are a founder of a really interesting company. So tell me a little bit more about what led you to start it and, and what you guys do. Well, thank you. Um, well, it relates really well to Stanford GSB because that's kind of weirdly enough, kind of where it all began accidentally. Uh, the long story short there is I went to school having had my VC experience. I was one of maybe you know less than 10 people in my class who had that experience. And I just got really lucky where my co-founder in the, not PIN, unfortunately, even though he's a good friend of mine still, my co-founder in the ultimate fund that we ended up creating approached me and said, hey, Steph, I have this idea of creating this class-wide fund for all of our classmates to invest together. We have you know, 25 startups coming out of our class every single year. Um, if you look at the historical data, there are anywhere from like one to four to five unicorns from each GSB class within the first like five years of graduation or something insane like that. And so he's like, I think it's also like a financially interesting um, and smart decision while also being like a really cool legacy we can leave on our class to stay connected after we all graduate. 
And I was like, wow, this is amazing. And I thought it was going to be like a super easy thing where we like go to Carter, Angelus together and like pop up this fund and, you know, I help him execute a few safes and, you know, the rest is history. Um, but it ended up being actually a really complicated problem because one is like our class is 400 people. There were fund size limits and the number of people you could have. That was one, I think, the minor issue. But the bigger issue was actually that 60% of our class was unaccredited. And so for traditional fund structures, 60% of our class wouldn't be able to participate. And it felt really important to us to have everyone be able to participate. Um, like not only is kind of that the ethos of GSB, which I really, really love and respect. But second of all, we also thought it was literally strategic to have everyone in the class be able to participate because our thesis also was that we would actually be able to win allocation in every single deal because everyone is either going to be a member or their best friend is going to be a member. Like our class is tight-knit enough where we're like having as many people as possible with connections to those founders that we want to invest in is literally smart. So we really wanted to make the effort to make it fully inclusive. Long story short, year and a half of research, talking to professors, we ultimately end up getting connected to Fenwick and helpful policymakers who had done other things in the equity crowdfunding space or whatever. And we basically were able to kind of form this unique type of investing vehicle modeled after the investment club. And the cool thing about it is that it can include unaccredited people. It can have large groups. There's kind of like a voting democratized model in the sense that it's not a traditional fund where just the fund GPs can invest in whatever they want the whole um, group has to kind of vote together. And we were like, oh, this is kind of perfect for our class. And so we ended up putting that together, raising a $1.5 million vehicle from our class. 180 classmates participated. We had a wait list and subscriptions were much bigger than that. But this is our first one. And we we're like, we don't know if we can deploy more than $1.5 million. And then TechCrunch actually ended up picking up an article about us in this is now June 2020. And the next following two years after that, it was when things started really taking off. Pin as a company didn't exist at all at that time. I actually wasn't, it wasn't on my radar at all to kind of create this into a full-time company, but it was over COVID where I'm sure everyone remembers, you know, Wall Street bets, fascination with Robinhood and investing, every celebrity seemingly becoming like a VC, whether it's like the Chainsmokers or Kygo or Kim Kardashian starting a PE fund. The interest in investing and particularly in startups and private investments became broader than ever. And so we were getting so many pinged inbounds from all these random groups who had found our TechCrunch article organically. And finally, last year, so like a year ago today, I finally was like, this is a big enough opportunity where this has to become a full-time company. And so that's the evolution of PIN. We essentially do the infrastructure layer so that people who want to do what we did no longer have to go through the kind of same legal admin tax hassle that we did. And now we empower groups of all sorts at a lot of different other schools, companies, creators and their followers, et cetera. And uh, that's us. <laughs> I love it. I love that it comes from a per such a clear personal need too. Like, I mean, we always joke about this in venture, LOL, but you know, it's built for a problem that you've had. And the fact that you really did the like building of the $1.5 million fund and are now democratizing access to that infrastructure, like you said, is so powerful. So who are some of like your customers? I don't know if you don't have to necessarily name names, but like who's the perfect person that's like, oh, I want to raise from a bunch of unaccredited investors. And Obviously, a lot of us are thinking, oh, yeah, maybe other business schools that have people that maybe don't have a lot of wealth but want to invest. Maybe it's famous people with a lot of followers, but maybe the followers can only put in a $500 check. But like walk me through who those people are that could use PIN and like launch their own vehicle. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. So I feel like I don't have a ton more to, to add, but you're right. We basically have four customer segments. The first is business schools and schools in general, to your point. 
The second I would say is like company groups and their alum. Um, so growth stage companies, unicorn companies, people who have like entrepreneurial activity and the next generation coming out, that's a really big hotspot for us. So Coinbase is one of our early groups that I worked with really closely to raise a group and they invest exclusively in Coinbase founders or like crypto related startups where they have a strong expertise in like investor market fit, if you will. The third is like founder accelerator programs or cohorts. Um, so we're seeing actually a huge uptick in founders themselves wanting to invest um, in each other. And it's interesting, part of it's for community reasons, similar to why we wanted to do it at GSB. But a lot of it also is like a strategic financial decision where they realize that it's obviously really risky being a founder and doing something entrepreneurial. You're getting paid less than market. Um, you're kind of betting your entire life and time in one venture. And so to be able to have like a trustworthy cohort of people that you're kind of investing across and to be able to share each other's success, a lot of people are thinking about it also, also as like a risk mitigation kind of tool. And so YC is a good example of that. Um, Sequoia Arc, we recently started working with as well for their founders to invest together. Great kind of group there. And the last ones there are like professional groups. And this can be anyone from creators and their followers, for sure. It could be trade groups. We're seeing a lot of like groups of people who maybe aren't even in tech, but people who have like a shared interest, like people who are really passionate about climate, for example, or really passionate about gaming. They might not even be in a professional way. They could just be like really avid hobbyists, but people who kind of surround themselves around a community love coming together to not only get to know each other, but also invest in the same things. And that kind of leads into like our, our bigger vision is like, we essentially want to do what Robinhood did for stock investing, but for startup investing and our view kind of like the ideal communities is like very similar to like Reddit groups and seeing kind of how people kind of come across literally every sort of like niche interest, hobby, geographical area, whatever. We want to be able to enable those kind of investing communities for all those different niches as well. I love it. I think it's so brilliant. And you mentioned it kind of with like YC and Sequoia, but there's something really interesting about like venture funds. And I say this, obviously, I'm a little biased, but venture funds with a really great portfolio, allowing their founders to be able to invest in each other as almost this like yes. side vehicle. So like whether you're like, obviously, my last firm, we had some folks that actually did have, you know, big exits, they can put in a huge check. And then we had pre-seed founders that could put in like a 5k check. And it doesn't really matter. But like putting your money into kind of the like overall fund performance, you can you know, get hopefully more than a 3x return. And it's just like totally. a nice way to show like your support for the community of portfolio companies, which I think venture funds don't think enough about community, which is a conversation for totally another day. Yeah. But I think it's actually like a really interesting vehicle. Like how do you create more of a tie amongst portfolio companies and portfolio founders, you know? Yes, 100%. I feel like I, I relate to that a lot because I feel like I wasn't expecting the community effects to be as strong as I now know they are, having been part of a, you know, a few of these groups now that have evolved. Like even just looking at our Stanford GSP group, there are like inside jokes that emerge from it. People have like told us that they feel more connected to people because they're more up to date on what other people are doing. They feel more incentivized to help, even if it's like a silly thing, but you you know, you're an investor in someone. And so it's not literally about the dollars for most people, but it's just the feeling of like, hey, I've committed my capital behind you and I'm in this with you together, we're seeing like huge, huge, huge conversion rates. Like whenever people ask for help, it's like a near 100% hit rate in terms of people actually responding and helping. And so I think the community part that you're talking about just makes so much sense, especially for venture portfolios where all the founders naturally are kind of like working towards the same things and have a lot of shared overlap and experiences. Yeah. And like, ideally they are probably like in kind of the same sectors, kind of the same values, kind of the same stage, like just because if, you know, you're naturally going to get that that funnel if it's a, at a venture fund. I have this theory that I want to just share quickly and then we'll wrap yeah. with our last question. This one thing that I've been playing around with a lot is this idea that 
technology over the past 15 to 20 years has really, really escalated. Like a lot of the infrastructure, like you're building, no code tools, AI, all these like amazing technological advancements have gotten us to a place where like anyone can start a tech company, anyone can start something. And so you've got so many founders now, which is amazing. But great software doesn't make unicorns anymore because anyone can start something and software is really easy to create. And so kind of this next generation of great companies, like what's going to separate the winners and the losers? My thesis is really around like community and like the founders Mm. that really get community and know that that's actually like the most, you know, obviously strong loyalty and clear purpose, clear values. Like that is the way to to separate yourself because you have this like compounding group that is always going to support you. That's something that I'm kind of like playing around with this like idea of just like community is the moat for this next generation. I'm not sure if that resonates, but even hearing you talk about these like crazy effects, hearing about these Reddit subgroups, right? Like when you can unlock the power of community, the exponential growth is incredible and it's actually defensible because it's not just great software anymore. It's got, you've got humans that are excited about what you're doing. 100%, especially as a former consumer tech investor. And I, you know, I was an investor in all things. And even now with PIN, we support companies of all sorts. But my heart, especially in like my interest in what I read about in my spare time is like all consumer tech. And I think the challenging thing about consumer tech is like everyone always hates consumer because they're like, what's defensible about this, right? And I'm like, sometimes so frustrated. I remember having to like advocate for certain companies. And like, it really is the community to your point. It's like how avidly they feel about the product and the brand and the word of mouth kind of statistics and growth there. It's like all these things that feel very intangible early and aren't numbers that you can point to um, maybe like you could for a SaaS company, for example, but in some ways they're really, really powerful. And that's why, you know, consumer tech companies can get really, really big. And I totally agree with you. It can be driven a lot by community as the, the main defense. Yeah. And the founders like get that that is the unlock that they need and it takes a while, but anyway, well, I could keep chatting with you forever. We're obviously going to talk a lot more when we play pickleball, but I have one final question for you that we ask all our guests. What is one piece of advice you would give to every 20 something? Oh, oh man. I feel like anything I say is going to be really cheesy, but I will say that is something I've also realized. Go for the cheesy. (laughs) Like you say what, what comes to mind. I just wish that I was myself more openly sooner in life. One actually really good example, like you opened this conversation talking about like my Twitter. My Twitter and posting online actually is a really recent thing. It started in September of last year and it was actually like a fun bet that I started with my coworkers and friends in my co-working space. And it was kind of weird because it was something I had wanted to do for so long, not necessarily shit posting, but I thought I've always just believed even just seeing the creator economy stuff and even just having been an inventor and seeing people build personal brands, I've always believed heavily that having a public presence and a big public presence, or not even a big public presence, but rather a public presence that's true to who you are and the, the industry that you're in is really beneficial to you as a professional. And then I think what I'm realizing now after having done it for a little bit, it's also really, really beneficial to you personally as well. Like the number of people um, and awesome opportunities, including this that I've had through just being more open on Twitter and broadcasting what I'm doing, things I care about, my personality, I think it just made me a happier, more fulfilled person. There's a quote that I love. It's like, I'm going to butcher it, but it basically talks about how if you're a lighthouse, you get to attract the type of people that resonate with you and vice versa. And I only realized that now when I started putting myself out there, that that's so true. Um, Like before I was almost, you know, handicapping myself because I was, um, reaching or I get to reach out to people who I resonated with, but there were so many other people out there who weren't broadcasting themselves. And because I wasn't broadcasting myself, I never got to connect to. And so I feel like ever since I've been putting myself out there more, 
like I've just seen literally dividends across all areas of my life. And I just really wish I had the courage to do that sooner. Like I did it when I was 29 or 30, however old I was then. And um, yeah, that's just my one piece of advice. That's such great advice. I think it's so true. And I mean, I think like if nothing else, this conversation can be that example of like, we knew who each other was. I certainly knew who you were. I thought you were fucking hilarious. And I thought you were building something really cool. And I knew what PIN was. And like- I'm honored. Yeah, no, truly. But likewise, right? Like we knew who each other was because we were willing to be vulnerable and willing to be authentically ourselves. But that takes time and that takes confidence. And in your 20s, that's hard. It's hard to have that, but it's such great advice. And if anyone wants to see a good playbook of how to be authentically yourself, follow Steph on Twitter. And you you, you know, you shouldn't (laughs) copy what Steph does, do what works for you, right? But you've definitely done a great job of that. So let's wrap with just Steph, tell us where they, everyone can find you on social and where they can learn more about PIN. Steph Moy, S-T-E-P-H-M-U-I on all social media, although Twitter is definitely my main one. And then our PIN website is www.getpin.xyz, but feel free to DM me and I'd be more than happy to answer anyone's questions if they want to learn more about investing, PIN, whatever. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you, Steph, for being here. It was so great to chat. This was so fun. Yes, Erica, thank you so much. This was so fun. All right. Talk soon. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Dear 20-something. If you enjoyed it, you can give us a follow over at Dear 20-something on Instagram or subscribe here or anywhere you get podcasts. 